Malombula, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Go Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up first... The Pacific have got used to uh, step-ups and resets and uh, uplifts and uh, re-engagements and uh, big announcements. There's a call for more analysis to determine the actual benefits to the region of the US-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Also... The extent of the knowledge of vocabulary is going down from generation to generation. We speak with a linguist in Fiji who's concerned about a deterioration in the vocabulary of the widely spoken Itauke language and later on if you look at the stats and stuff you know our rates amongst a particularly young speaker is um is quite high we look at a recent study into mental health and well-being for Maori and Pacifica The United States may have been able to pull off what China could not earlier this year in getting Pacific leaders to sign on to an all-inclusive partnership agreement but a New Zealand academic says more analysis is needed to determine just how much of the 810 million US dollars in additional funds is actually going to reach Pacific Island countries. 15 Pacific Island states and territories co-signed the partnership agreement with the US President Joe Biden last week, the scope of which covers everything from climate change to the US Compact for Free Association and the Tuna Treaty. Joining me to break down some of the rhetoric is Victoria University Wellington Professor of Political Science and International Relations, John Franco. Kia ora, John, and welcome back on Pacific Waves. What are your first impressions of the US-Pacific Partnership Agreement? Well, it's good to hear that the, the United States is keen to re-engage in the region, and there are uh, some aspects of the package that are certainly of, of interest to the Pacific Island states. But over the last few years... Uh, uh, a lot of us who observe the Pacific have got used to uh, step-ups and resets and uh, uplifts and uh, re-engagements and uh, big announcements of big aid packages. And it is one needs to go in carefully and look at the detail of what exactly is being offered here. I mean, let's remember that uh, uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, in uh, 2011, there was a lot of hoo-ha about uh, uh, President Barack Obama's uh, pivot to the Asia-Pacific. And this was also going to bring large amounts of new USA. The US was going to re-engage with the Pacific Island region. What amounted as a result of that? Really, the US aid office in Port Moresby was the major consequence for the Pacific Islands. And I see in this package, they're talking about a similar US aid office now to be set up in Suva. People sometimes also mention the troop deployment to Darwin, but that's a deal with Australia, which isn't uh, directly connected. Um, it's not part of the Pacific Islands region that we're talking about here. So uh, while the aid package is to be, um, you know, it's, it's positive that the US is, is seeking to put more assistance into the region, uh, we should remember that uh, last time that didn't necessarily amount to that much. I must say, it's it's a very lengthy document for a short period of time to be put together and has elements of, of other regional documents that we've seen in, in recent weeks and months. Um, any particular aspects of it that stand out for you as, as to raising further questions that probably need a bit more clarification? Well, certainly, I think that of the 810 million announced, if you look carefully, three quarters of that 600 million are uh, uh, going assistance to the uh, Tuna Treaty. Uh, now, this relates to uh, a long running dispute that's occurred between the United States and the South Pacific countries about access to, uh, uh, to uh, for, for U.S. Uh, tuna trawlers 
uh, in the Pacific. The, the US walked out on a previous agreement in, in 2016 and then negotiated a deal that provided uh, uh, some funds, um, about 70 million per annum. And if you look at the, the 600 million, it's over 10 years. So divide that by 10, that's 60 million. It's not a major change from what they were giving before, although we, one does need to look carefully at the detail of this. Now, personally, I wouldn't call that aid. It's an access agreement. It's a, it's a, a, a negotiated uh, arrangement with the Forum Fisheries Association and others that give uh, priority access to U.S. vessels. Um, it's not a, a major new commitment of aid. China tried to push something like this through, right? Uh, at the at the at their recent meeting with the Pacific Island leaders, and they weren't able to get it through. You know, this go back to the table drawing board. Talk more about this. Is is is, is it fair to compare the China regional agreement with the U.S. Pacific? regional agreement as in terms of the the scope and breadth of those documents side by side i think there are certainly similarities and pacific island leaders um, including fiame in samoa have pointed out those similarities um but the uh, and in the context of the discussion we've been having about fisheries let's remember that the chinese fishing fleet in the pacific is the largest in the world it's heavily subsidized there's been lots of concerns about the the impact of Chinese fishing, including on the um, the cannery in American Samoa, remember. Uh, it, indeed, French President Emmanuel Macron only last year was talking about this and talking about new steps to uh, counter the uh, rise of Chinese fishing in the Pacific region. So this new agreement, I think we should also see in a similar light. The Compacts of Free Association, again mentioned here in this agreement, um, the U.S. has been trying to fast track those talks. Uh, we saw just a couple of weeks ago, actually, the marshals pushing back a bit and refusing to meet until they had something in black and white about the 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 treatment of the nuclear legacy, about about some resolutions and support in in terms of the health and the acknowledgement of the 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 harm and the damage caused by that. Yeah, I mean, for for years there's been controversies. Uh about the uh, w- whether or not a change circumstances petition could be put forward that would entail some renegotiation of the original uh, negotiations around compensation for nuclear tests. Normally, that's kept separate from the compact negotiations. Uh, but from the Marshallese side, you can understand that these are two very important streams of potential income and a very important bo- for the bilateral relations between particularly the Marshalls and, and the United States. Uh, see also the the first ever envoy to the Pacific Islands Forum. They're saying, but also at, at, I would like to bring in to mention here as well the fact that French Polynesia is listed here as among the signatories and New Caledonia. That that's problematic on 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 a few fronts, is it not? Well, the, the uh, interestingly, the point you make about the envoy to the Pacific Islands that was also in the China deal that they were trying to negotiate back in May. Um, on the um. Uh, a presence. I mean, there's long been a controversy about the presence of uh, New Caledonia and French Polynesia in the Pacific Island Forum and the uh, uh, preparedness to accept their membership, given that in the 1970s, the understanding was that uh, island nations would only become members once they were decolonized. It was supposed to be a forum for those who had already secured independence. Um, uh, I know Australia and New Zealand pushed very strongly for the uh, um, uh, inclusion of uh, French Polynesia and New Caledonia as full members. 
and the altered geostrategic context, the competition with China was an important factor in that decision uh, uh, as well. Um, but it does raise some issues for the forum that will come up again and again. Going back to this this Pacific Agreement, apart from the details and unpacking it all, how fast do we know how fast this is going to be rolled out? I mean, when can Pacific Islanders start to see some of the impact of this document in their lives? It's supposed to be an agreement that lasts over 10 years, or a lot of it is, and, and it hasn't yet been signed off by the US Congress. So uh, there's still quite a lot of steps to be taken. And uh, I think it's only supposed to start in 2023. And we know that all aid donors often, you know, you get these big commitments, whether it be China, Australia, New Zealand, or the US or whoever, you, you often get a major difference between what's budgeted and what's committed and what's promised and what's actually spent. And that's sometimes because it's difficult to set the projects up on the ground, uh, sometimes because priorities change. Uh, it's certainly worth exploring the actuals rather than the budgeted figure. Probably worth mentioning, um, there was some press around leaked, leaked correspondence suggesting that there was things to work out within the in, within the, within this deal Solomon Islands was named as someone that was kind of resisting some of the things that were in this document um getting getting it over the line quite, quite a big big deal for from the US perspective in terms of getting all these signatories on board yes yes and the, but the Solomon Islands does seem to have changed its position there was a leaked internal memo that suggested that they weren't going to sign up to this and of course that's in the context of the China security deal back in April and the more recent announcement that they uh, weren't going to let um, foreign vessels refuel at Solomon Island ports. But uh, Solovari attended the meeting and he put his name to the to the document here in Wellington. Foreign Minister Jeremiah Minelli was speaking last night and also echoed that um, preparedness of the government to ratify the deal. As far as I know, Teneti Mamau from Kiribati did not attend, though, uh, so that's uh, 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 certainly a factor for the US. I note that the um, three embassies that they say will be established are in Solomon Islands and Kiribati, the two countries that switched diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China in 2019. And the third one is in Tonga, which is the country that the Pacific country that is in, the, in is most heavily indebted to, to China. Uh, so there's no accident there. One can see clearly what the intention is here. Um, but um, for the U.S. to have an enhanced diplomatic um, representation in the Pacific, I think, is nevertheless to be welcomed. Despite a common perception that Fiji's Itaokei language is widely spoken by Fijians at home and abroad, linguists in Fiji say its future survival is under threat. Fijian communities in Aotearoa this week are celebrating Madawa Nivosa Vakaviti, Fijian Language Week. Its theme this year is Me Vakambulambulataki, Vaka Maringeti, Kavaka Nganga, Dotaki Navosa Vakaviti, which means nurture, preserve, and sustain the Fijian language. RNZ Pacific reporter Rachel Nath spoke to a language and culture scholar in Fiji, Paul Garrity, who's concerned for the survival of the language. There's a report that just came out from UNESCO that talks about how indigenous people's languages are currently on the verge of extinction. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel, working in the Pacific, do you feel that that's the case in, um, in Fiji? 
Um, that's a, that's a, a very good question, um, and, and I think the answer is um, yes. Uh, uh, people got, get the impression that you know Fijian is not really under threat because, as we know, um, it's spoken every day in Fiji. For, from for a lot of the people in Fiji, it's their first language, and even for a lot of people in New Zealand, it's their first language. But but um, nevertheless. Um, the, for example, the extent of the knowledge of vocabulary is going down from generation to generation. So in other words, young people of today, especially in urban areas, do not speak as well as their parents and grandparents. Um, they don't have the same vocabulary, the same knowledge. Uh, so that's something to be concerned about. Um, also, there are certain parts of Fiji whose language well, in some places, has been lost. We know from earlier records, for example, that the uh, people called the Vunangumu, who lived in the centre of Itilevu, used to speak a very distinct language. Uh, but that has been completely lost. It's extinct. Nobody speaks it anymore. There are some older people who remember bits of it. And that's not the only one. There are um, different varieties of Fijian uh, spoken, you know, for example, in Goma, in Berata, in Naweni, um, to a certain extent, in Ngao and Koro, uh, people are losing their distinctness. Uh, in other words, all the time, things are becoming, the language is becoming more like uh, what I would call standard Fijian or Fijian of the urban centers. And the same thing is happening in, in uh, say, the province on Bonolevo, the province of Takondrove. Um, a lot of people are losing, languages are being lost and being replaced simply by what you might call standard Takondrove language, the language of Somo Somo. You know, that's spoken all, all over Taviuni now, uh, but it's not actually the original language of northern Taviuni or southern Taviuni. So, yeah, there's a lot to be concerned about. Um, and, um, you know, other minority languages like Rotuman we should be concerned about too because um, a lot of Rotumans today, of course, uh, there are more people off the island than there are on the island. On the island, I think Rotuman is okay. It's, you know, it's being spoken, passed on through the generations. But off the island, um, especially in places like you know, Asuva, the towns, the working places in, in Fiji, the um, Rotuman people living there Often, especially the younger ones, um, speak Fijian rather than Rotuman, um, and some have no knowledge of Rotuman at all, or just a few words. So, uh, yes, it's something that we should be concerned about. What would you say is causing this possible extinction? Um, uh, the, the, the peculiar colonial history that we have is, to a large extent, to blame for not only the loss of indigenous languages in, in Fiji or the, the reduction in knowledge of the indigenous languages, um, but also perceptions. This is a lot, a, a, a very important thing. What do you mean by perception? Um, in the early colonial history of Fiji, all education was in the vernaculars. So there was um, everybody was taught either in Fijian or Hindi or in some other um, language, uh, Rotuman, for example. And then quite suddenly, about 1930, we acquired, uh, it was because the missions couldn't uh, afford to continue maintaining the education system. Up until that point, there were, well, very few government schools. Most of the schools were missions of various sorts. And, of course, all the um, Indian educational institutions had their own schools. But around about 1930, the, the, they couldn't afford, uh, so um, 
the colonial government in Fiji asked the New Zealand government, and at that time, New Zealand government education system was um, definitely um, down on New Zealand Maori. Unlike today, of course, it's completely changed. But in, in the eight, in the 1930s, um, that's that's why we have in schools in Fiji, we still have in some, unbelievably, but we still have in some schools children being punished for speaking their own language. So that's an attitude that we have. We want to punish children for speaking their own language at school. It's still very much the case in Fiji that we look up to English as being a superior language and we criticize people. We make jokes about people who don't speak English well. Why is it important that we sustain the Itaoke language? Now, if you if you read if you go back to UNESCO, um, they will tell you why it's important uh, to maintain original languages as as much lang- linguistic diversity as we can. One from a purely as- aesthetic point of view, it's nice to have lots of languages. It's why we talk about you know rainbow nations or um, I think uh, I'm not sure exactly what Rautumara used to say, but he used to be very proud of the cultural and linguistic diversity that we have in Fiji. And he, I don't think he used the word ta- a rainbow, but he would say, you know, cultural diversity is what we should be proud of and we should be encouraging. A new study by New Zealand's AUT University has found Pacifica and Maori youth experience higher levels of mental well-being issues compared to other groups. The study was launched during Mental Health Awareness Week last week, which concluded over the weekend. RNZ Pacific reporter Finau Fonua spoke with Pacific researcher Dr. Dan Tautolo and began by asking him if Pacifica and Maori were actually overrepresented in statistics for mental health and well-being impacts. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, yeah, if you look at the stats and stuff, you know, our rates amongst uh, particularly young Pacifica is um, is quite high uh, in terms of mental, you know, poor mental well-being and uh you know uh suicide stuff and all and all of those kinds of issues so yeah it's it's something that um we all need to be aware of um if we're not already and um you know we 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 need to um i suppose equip ourselves or um prepare ourselves with strategies or, or things that we can do to help and support identify and um and yeah tr- try and help our, our young people that may be going through some of these issues uh, have any um any reasons been identified for why um, Pacifica and Maori have um, higher rates in areas of mental illness? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of sort of stuff done um, looking at mental well-being amongst Pacific people. For this um, study that we did, we particularly focused on depression and looking at um, the relationship between particular risk factors and symptoms of depression in Pacific um, adolescents, so aged about 17. And, um, yeah, we managed to pull out a few sort of key things which seem to um, be important uh, in terms of, you know, their relationship with friends, their relationship with family, particularly with um, mothers, and also, um, you know, what's going on at school, in the school environment, and those kinds of things, yeah. And what's the main challenge for... Um, Pacifica um, in terms of um, mental illness uh, um, tackling mental illness in Pacifica communities um, well the main challenge well well I mean uh, the, I mean the findings from this study in particular found that um, relationships between mother and child 
seem to be really important in terms of some symptoms of depression. So, I mean, we've known about a lot of these kinds of things um, previously, but I, I guess what this study does is it contributes more more evidence and support about the importance of that whole mother-child dynamic. And um, even though you know our, our study, this study looked at Pacific adolescence, I, I, I think those relationships and that dynamic is set up uh, much earlier in life, so when the kids are younger. So, I mean, in terms of that particular, um, you know, issue, anything that we can do that can support um, that positive relationship in terms of mothers and children, um, you know, in terms of government things, whether that means supporting them to not have to go back to work so early and be able to spend more time with their kids before they have to go back, um, more financial support for them in terms of, um, you know, providing those things that their, their children need. All of, the, all of those kinds of um, supports would be, would be useful, I suppose, in terms of helping to foster that positive uh, mother-child relationship. Um, and the other thing that uh, sort of seemed to come out was the importance of schools and the school environment and um, those sort of peer relationships with friends. And so, um, you know, I think schools, um, you know, need to be resourced appropriately to be able to provide those positive um, environments and build that positive um, culture um, for our for our students so that they can thrive and flourish. Yeah. Just one more question. Um with uh is is it true that there is um with Pacifica with with um with males in general there's a greater reluctance to seek help in regards to depression? Um, yeah, I mean, I, that, that, I guess it wasn't something we particularly focused on in, in, in our study, but I, I think in general that seems to be the case um, amongst, a, you know, a, a lot of people, a speaker in, in general. Um, but I, I suppose particularly males is, um, yeah, maybe that reluctance to speak or talk about it. But, I, you know, I think that's slowly turning around. And I think initiatives like, you know, Mental Health Awareness Week help to create that um, the understanding and, the, and, and try and create that space or that environment for people to feel comfortable to come forward and talk about these kinds of issues, to feel um, comfortable to open up and talk to them, um, you know, to whoever they need to talk to somebody about what's going on for them and um, try and seek help. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. More than one day.